Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Alabest. Our cultural motion away from patriarchy and towards a more egalitarian society has already come a long way. We've studied much of that progress here on the podcast before, including how women fought for and secured the right to vote, how we've expanded access to education, we've expanded access to careers, access to birth control, and much more. And we can and should celebrate the progress that our foremothers and their allies have made for us. However, there is some work yet to be done. We have a long way to go in our work of deconstructing all oppressive systems. And one of the most challenging aspects of doing this work is being able to look at the pain that these systems have already caused and are actively causing. All of that is to say that on today's episode, we're going to hear some hard stories. And as a caution for listeners, these stories will include explicit discussions of physical and sexual abuse, child marriage, domestic partner violence, and self-harm. And we recognize that this subject matter won't make for easy listening. But we hope you'll stay with us because these stories not only spread knowledge and challenge our empathy, they also help us to understand how women and non-binary people can persevere through hardships and still share a light with the world. Later in the episode, we'll hear from artist and educator Susan Warren as she tells stories of her childhood, of struggle and abuse, and her unrelenting optimism for the future. But first, we're going to be joined by Red O'Hare to hear a heart-wrenching and unflinchingly honest essay about men's rights activism, mental health stigmas, violence, manipulation, and ultimately what it means to be a survivor. As a short introduction to Red O'Hare, she writes that her pronouns are she, her, and that she is a human. She was born in Northern California, grew up in Southern California, and now currently lives in the Pacific Northwest, where she works in a pub. She says she invited Polly Shore to her bat mitzvah, but he didn't come. Welcome, Red O'Hare. Hi there, my name is Red O'Hare. My pronouns are she and her. I am a non-binary Ashkenazi Jew based on the West Coast, uh, and I really love my dog. There are a lot of things that concern me in respect to men and their mental health. There are no domestic violence shelters for men, and when a man is a victim of domestic violence, it is culturally regarded as a joke. Men's mental health is something seen as an afterthought. The concept of manning up is destructive. Even my arguably woke father, he still thinks therapy is just another way of transferring addiction or codependency. And I say all that to say this. When we think about domestic violence against women, we think about the partner perpetrating it as a troglodyte, someone who thinks women are here to make babies and stay in the kitchen. And while those people exist, my personal experience with domestic violence is not as cut and dry. I was married for nine-ish years to a man who smoked lovingly of strong women. He did all of the cooking to the point where he literally did not allow me in the kitchen. I now cook professionally, and I find it darkly funny that this is an act of rebellion. For years, I considered myself lucky for being married to such an evolved person. I was 100% on board with his objections about divorce courts largely favoring women, the isolation and pain experienced by men with depression. My ex-husband introduced me to something called men's rights activism. 
At the time, I thought it was a good thing. Sure, they raised money to harass women online, but certainly, I thought to myself, they had a point. I drank the absolute f*** out of that Kool-Aid and found myself arguing with longtime friends about how women could also be abusers, could also be manipulative, could also gaslight. All those things can be true, but what I didn't quite understand until much later, after the divorce, after therapy, was that all those things are the result of a patriarchal standards for men. And the people who are not men did not set up this system. My ex co-opted the language of the oppressed to serve his own extremely selfish purposes. On our first anniversary, I remember bending over, trying to protect my head and my internal organs as his forearms rained on my back while he screamed, I do everything for you, why can't you just be f***ing happy? Every word punctuated by a blow. He told me later he didn't use his fist because he loved me so much. His love resulted in my back becoming a large purple bruise. After he said I could call the police, he would wait on the porch for them. I didn't. I wish I had. All I said, curled fetal on the edge of our marital bed, was to say, Sweetie, if you're going to hit me, please close the windows so the neighbors don't hear. Those words are among the many I still scream into pillows when I am overcome, even years later, by how weak I thought I was. After a time with abuse, your idea of what is normal shifts into a strange and rocky world. I fought back in the beginning, but if you kick a dog enough times, it will learn to lick your hand, believing you will still give it love. He railed against feminism, which he regarded as a cancer. The word feminist was akin to a slur in our home, a double wide on the outskirts of Olympia by the edge of a swamp. To my ex-husband, feminism was the thing that hurt him. His mother, who I never met, was tantamount to the most evil person that had ever existed, not taking into account that his father, an alcoholic Lutheran preacher and physics professor, had knocked up my ex's mother on a lab bench when she was 18 or 19 years old at the Lutheran college where he taught. He then was obligated to marry what was likely just a scared child. My ex adored his father and said nothing but unkind things about his mother, who bore her sad and angry spouse several children, and as far as I'm concerned, did the best she could under the circumstances. Yet somehow she was the villain in my ex's mind, and after I had given up fighting, opting to play a quiet possum in the face of his rage, he would tell me that I was cold, just like her. In the rare occurrences where I fought back, the joy in his face that he had another excuse to hurt me still haunts me. I have met, known, and loved many men who were survivors of abuse. Sometimes their mothers were culpable in their abuse, or in some circumstances, the perpetrators. He spoke often lovingly of the time he was failing math and his father held a gun to his head while he studied algebra. Given how much fantasy was involved in his recreation of the past, I don't know if this is even true, but he believed it was, and in this case, that's very much the same. When I first found out about men's rights activism, I was thrilled because, yes, there are a lot of things in our culture that are very much a men's issue. I thought in my 21-year-old optimism that their so-called MRAs were fighting for men's mental health, perhaps raising money to open domestic violence shelters for male survivors of abuse. This was not the case. What I discovered was a loose constellation of men who were very, very angry. 
There are reasons for men to be angry, but they are angry because they view all of the world's problems and their own personal failings as the fault of women. One of the more visible MRAs, a man named Paul Elam, wrote about how he realized women run the world when his father assisted his mother in forcing him to take diarrhea medication when Paul was a child. He describes the moment as when he took the red pill, a reference to the Matrix trilogy where the main character, Neo, is given a choice between the red pill and the blue pill, the red pill being the way to seeing what is true. This has been adopted by not only men's right activists, but also other ham-fistedly toxic groups. There are a few flavors of asshole that fall under the red pill heading. One of them are the pickup artists who believe that women enjoy men being assholes and being assholes will help get them laid. There are men going their own way who spend all of their time online and in person telling women that they are going their own way, but to my knowledge have not done so. What these men do made national headlines during what is known as Gamergate. Gamergate started in 2014 with a blog post by an ex-boyfriend of a female video game developer, Zoe Quinn, which led to an unfounded accusations that Quinn used her feminine wiles and sexual favors in exchange for positive coverage of her game. Gamergate turned into a campaign of harassment against women in the video game industry. Coordinated from gaming platforms to image boards like 4chan to Reddit and YouTube, the campaign was defined by death and rape threats. Gamergators claimed to be fueled by their frustration over the supposed collusion between media industries and feminism rather than by misogyny. It is also worth noting that Gamergate gave Milo Yiannopoulos a platform and planted the seeds for what we now know as the alt-right in the United States today. This was the color of my ex-husband's love for me. Every time I would cry, he would be angry because my tears were clearly not a response to his behavior, but a way to manipulate him into doing what I wanted. Did you know, he would grin, his teeth snapping, that women's tears lower men's testosterone. That's why women cry. It's an evolutionary thing. Women who can manipulate their partner with tears survived. The irony of this was utterly lost on him. One of the things I really don't care for in the stereotypical Lifetime movies about abuse is the man is painted as just garbage all the time. This does a disservice to survivors because those who have not been abused think that the survivors were just stupid staying with the person that hurt them so badly. That's not how it works. For every low, for every night I spent in stomach clench fear that tonight was the night he would kill me, there were also dizzying highs. And I firmly believe that if I loved this objectively broken person enough, he would be okay. The holes in the walls of our home told a very different story. He would break things, telling me he broke them so he wouldn't hit me, and I was grateful. He would speak lovingly of the strong women he knew and admired. They were mostly fictional. He was very fond of Sigourney Weaver's character in Alien because, and I quote, her character has nothing to do with her being female. He liked Tabitha King, Stephen King's wife, who was a poet. He liked and admired Amelia Earhart. All women that he did not have to actually speak to or interact with who might have inconvenient opinions or needs. He liked Amy Sedaris, though I am confident Amy Sedaris would not have liked him. If I read any women authors that he had not previously approved of, he would express concern that I was being indoctrinated into feminism. And I was grateful for these warnings. So, so grateful. 
when I suggested couples therapy, he said he wanted a male therapist because a female therapist would clearly take my side. He would tell me I was abusive and I believed him. I have journals full of dissonance where I wrote about how I was the worst person, about how he was the kindest man who only hurt me, who only hit me, because I was so bad that I drove him to it. If I had been a decent woman, a good wife, he never would have needed to do that. Clearly, this was all my fault. I tried to leave him about halfway through our marriage. His best and only friend, a lovely and unendingly patient man named John, had purchased a farm in Red Bluff, California. A friend of mine from college came to work with us because, frankly, we had no idea what we were doing. We all attempted to make the desert bloom and failed because my ex-husband refused to set up irrigation and deer kept nibbling the meager crops. My ex became convinced that I and my college friend were sleeping together, which we authoritatively were not. He had one of his famous temper tantrums and set up a tent in the yard. Meanwhile, John, my friend, and I were smoking pot in John's bedroom. Both men were aware of the teeth-grinding awkwardness that my ex had slathered over the evening and were doing their absolute best to make me feel better by just acting normal. From the window came a baritone bellow. How long have you been f***ing? He screamed. We aren't dude, came the reply. You are a liar and you are a whore and I can do better. The words bounced off the dry hills and I was gifted with a cold certainty that I had to leave or he would kill both me and my friend. I packed everything and touched my ex's shirt hanging in the closet with tears in my eyes, asking John to please take care of him. I took my and my 13-year-old dog in a U-Haul, leaving my beloved 1991 Toyota Previa at the property so they were able to get food in town. He apologized first by saying he didn't care if I had slept with my friend and that he missed me. I didn't care. It was over. Later, he realized he was wrong and groveled anymore. I didn't care. It was over. But then my sweet little lady dog, who had been given to me for my bat mitzvah, died. I firmly believe that if she hadn't, I would not have gone back to spend four more years at the mercy of a man who could not admit he was wrong and took his wrongness out on the one person who loved him. You can call me stupid or foolish if you like. That is unkind, but not incorrect. My optimism is an odd thing, rearing its head at the most inopportune times, and I need you to understand that I cringe on a daily basis at every concession I made that chipped away at my bleeding, breaking heart. When I tell these stories to my present-day boyfriend, he knows not to ask why I stayed. Please do not ask a survivor why they stayed. Ask them anything else. Ask them what well they drew on, what burbling source of life kept them alive. Ask them anything besides why they stayed. I stayed because I loved him. I stayed because I thought if I could get it right, he'd forgive me for not paying enough attention to him when I had a paper due in college. I stayed because I thought if I was perfect enough, we could maybe have a family. He got me pregnant once. I had gone off the pill because according to him, the pill made me crazy and I'd be nicer if I weren't on all those hormones. We were having sex and I told him I was ovulating and to please, please not ejaculate in me. He did. I found out I was pregnant seven weeks later. At the time, we were living with my mother. John, my ex's best and again only friend, had recently lost his own mother, so my ex was sometimes away helping him clear out the house. 
In those rare moments when he wasn't around, I woke my mother up and told her. She looked at me with a strange mix of love and pity that I will never be able to forget. You don't have to tell him, you know. And every part of me rebelled. The mass of cells multiplying me was half him. I could not and would not consider not telling him. The abortion was a conclusion we both came to and agreed on. We cited the Ray Bradbury story about a terminated fetus that came back when the parents were ready. We were adults making an adult decision. We went to Planned Parenthood. I got a medical abortion. I was offered painkillers but refused because I genuinely believed I deserved the shivering agony that tore me open. He held me while I cramped and screamed and wept on the floor of my mother's guest bathroom. It was one of the few kind things he did for me. In retrospect, it was just another time he got to feel important because I needed him. I still remember his arms around me as I rocked, screaming on cold tile. It was the last nice thing he ever did for me, besides finally leaving. After the fact, he told everyone who would listen that I had aborted our child without telling him. Years before we moved to California, a friend of mine and Olympia's father hit her so hard a bruise bloomed on her pale temple, and my ex quietly went about making what he called a kill kit to remove her father from the world. Nothing happened. My friend died several years later, and her father stood at her funeral and wept. People are complicated, I guess. My ex apparently was not okay with any woman being hit, but it was okay he hit me. He was lauded for his protection of women, how evolved he was. But when I was weary of him calling me over to his computer to look at something he thought was funny, after the 10th time in an hour, it was because I didn't care about him, not because I'd been trying to write a final essay for class for the past two days. In another memory, I am laying on his chest as we watch one of my favorite movies, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, Her Lover. It's about a sad and beautiful woman who is married to a wealthy, abusive crime lord. Most of the action takes place in a high-end restaurant. She falls in love with a sweet, bookish man, her lover, at the restaurant, and the cook helps them escape. The husband has him brutally murdered. It's a visually stunning movie without much dialogue, and unbeknownst to me, he hated it because it painted men as either monsters or martyrs. I could feel his heart beat fast and angry as my head pressed in against him. At the time, I viewed him as the sweet, bookish man. It occurred to me years later, he knew he was more the thief than the lover, and that was why he didn't like it. When it was over, he asked, did you like that? Did you like the movie where men are either terrible or they die because they're good? He could have just said he didn't want to watch the movie. Bridget Jones's diary made him angry because it was about a woman who didn't settle. Away We Go drove him into a rage because he found the main male character weak and therefore it was a feminist movie. He hated Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and watching it triggered a huge fight. He was angry because I said the main characters are not us, they are characters. He was unable to separate fiction on the screen or a book from himself. He had to identify with every protagonist. He was the main character. We watched Fight Club once, and he wrapped my throat in his stubby hand and held me against the wall and said, I know what I'm supposed to be now. Thank you for showing me. If he felt for one moment that he was not the center of my universe, I was the worst person ever. I was the center of his universe, after all. Every single thing he did was for me, including, apparently, forgetting to pay the power bill for six months, including the nine years where he never had a job, 
besides the seasonal one, I managed to cajole my manager at Fred Meyer to get him, or the farm jobs we worked after I graduated where I firmly indicated that we were a package deal, including every time he mocked things I like, like Ani DeFranco or Dresden dolls. A gilded cage is still a cage, but my cage was not bejeweled. It was rusty and stank of fear, strewn with garlands of broken teeth and a jaw that to this day still clicks when I chew too hard. During the last year of our marriage, he convinced himself that he was dying of kidney failure. After swanning around for months, after me coming home every night to the shared house in Oakland, California, to him being just so dramatic, after he screamed at me that I would not let him pass away because I was so pathetic and lonely that I could not be without him, after I drove him into the woods where he told me he would die, only after all this, I finally got him to go to the hospital. He was fine, physically anyway. And you'd think that after all that, he'd be happy he wasn't dying, but he just yelled at me how I only got him to go to the doctor because I wanted to prove that I was right, that he was a liar and a malingerer. The story he told himself after was that he, who apparently was some mix between Wolverine from X-Men and an actual god, had digested his bad kidney and grew another one. I told him he needed to get a job, and he said it was the meanest thing I'd ever said to him. He left me for his former boyfriend, partially because I told him to get a job, but also partially because I think even he knew the jig was up. His last-ditch effort at manipulation had failed, and he had found someone who would love him and take care of him. He refused to let me drive him to the bus station, saying that he didn't need me anymore. About an hour later, he called me, saying he was lost, and could I please come pick him up? I dropped him off. I don't remember what was said. I just remember thinking that if I could just get him out of my truck and into the station, I would never have to deal with him again. I wept the whole way home, and I still don't know what kind of tears I cried. The boyfriend, a simple, kind man named Davey, tried to kill himself after about six weeks because my ex convinced him that his antidepressants were making him less than who he was. Sam, in editing this, said that this seemed sudden and asked that I talk more about the impact. The thing is, it was sudden, and the impact was I finally felt some kind of free. My ex told anyone that would listen, including his family, that he briefly reunited with that I was the one who had convinced that sweet, sad man to try ending his life. My ex also went on a campaign of attempted character assassination, accusing me of trying to poison him with antifreeze by putting it in the coffee creamer we both used. Every time the Wi-Fi where he was living acted up, it was me. Me, the person who can barely operate a computer, suddenly was a super smart hacker. He made a QRC code with my full name, my address, and my phone number saying I liked flirting, Doctor Who, and anal. This is not fair, because I only really like the first two. Because, like his mother, I was the enemy, and I needed to be stopped. He viewed himself as David, and women as Goliath. I hesitate to talk about the patriarchy in a grand scale, mostly because people much smarter and erudite have said everything that I'd like to say in a much neater way. What I will say is abuse can come from any and all genders, but only cis men think it is their right to abuse. The men who abuse are not the cartoonish versions we see on the Lifetime channel. They are, like everyone, complicated beings. They don't think they're abusive. 
They think they have been patient and that you have pushed them and that it is your fault that they swing their fists in fury at your body, at your being. To anyone listening, please hear me when I say that just because someone says the right things about women, says that you are so strong, they can still turn around and hurt you. And when they do, please run. Even if I don't know you, please send me a message. I know where you are. I know the depths of your sorrow. I know what it is to look in the mirror and think you have failed. You haven't. Your entire life awaits you. Do not be daunted by the road ahead. I have walked it and so many others have too. Our tracks will guide you, my friend. I won't tell you that you're strong because you probably don't feel like that and that's okay. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be anything besides yourself. I believe in you and someday you'll believe in me too. Thank you, Red, for sharing these harrowing stories, both eloquently and with such fierce love for those who face similar experiences. It's so painful to see the ways that patriarchal culture, including the ways we stigmatize men's mental health, the misogynistic echo chambers of men's rights activism, and how we teach men that they're entitled to control and abuse, how all of this festers and results in such awfulness in our world. But we thank you for speaking about it and for pulling these realities out into the light and for joining us in this project today. Up next, we're going to hear from Susan Warren, who will share her own difficult story confronting a history fraught with oppression and hardship, but also blessed with memories of matriarchs and joyful dancing and an unyielding hope that we can still do better. Susan Warren is a dancer, artist, and former teacher and now mentor, surviving late-stage ovarian cancer and a pandemic by splashing around in watercolors and dancing in her front yard garden. She loves greeting neighbors at her gate and a good cup of tea. Welcome, Susan Warren. Hi, my name is Susan Warren. I'm a retired art and dance teacher living in Northern California. My pronouns are she, her. There is a myth that in the United States, things like malnutrition and child brides don't occur. But as long as we remain a patriarchal society, unsupported, uneducated mothers and their children remain vulnerable to such dangers everywhere, even in the United States. I know this from experience. If we think of patriarchy as a dominant social system, a system where one portion of humanity exploits and dominates another portion of humanity, where everyone is struggling and competing for resources, then its opposite would be a partnership social system, where resources are shared for the benefit of all, where the health of an individual means greater health of the community where healthy, happy children mean a healthy, happy future. More like a cooperative village rather than a tiered hierarchy. I can't help but wonder how my story might have been different if I had experienced a partnership model of living. As it was, though, I fell prey to a sexual predator at age 14. This podcast, Breaking Down Patriarchy, has inspired me to begin to tell my story. It's my hope that the telling of it will keep me grounded on my healing journey 
and perhaps inspire others to open their hearts and minds to imagine a better world. If we can dream it, we can achieve it. And this podcast is paving the way. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. So let me give you some background. In the 1950s, my parents were on course to live the American dream. They married in their early 20s, as was common then, and quickly settled into gender roles where my father was the breadwinner and my mother happily began her life as a stay-at-home mom. I was the firstborn and would be the only daughter. But the dream wouldn't last long. By the time my mother had her third child, my father had a growing restlessness, and he started to wander. I was mostly oblivious to their initial strife as I was busy being a kid, discovering a deep love for music and dance. I had an active imagination and I would fantasize about life as a ballerina. I lived all day long in a tutu and tights and I danced everywhere. I would have loved dance lessons. But my parents had other concerns. In 1963, the beatniks were paving the way for the hippie revolution. Timothy Leary would soon urge people to tune in, turn on, and drop out, and my father did just that. He joined other restless seekers, people who craved a more authentic way of being, participating in pilgrimages to India, and a communal lifestyle that had a closer relationship to the land. For three years, my father lived a double life. His participation in our family dwindled as he began exploring other possibilities with other women. He tried unsuccessfully to manage both lifestyles, and he spent less and less time with my mother, and more and more time with the woman who would later become my stepmother, a woman who was also a restless seeker. My mother became suicidal. When she discovered she was pregnant with her fifth child, it snapped her out of it, thankfully, and she made the decision to live for that child. Without telling my father, she sold our house in Southern California and hauled all of us up to Alaska to live with her best friend from high school. Her friend was married with five children of her own, and they were wintering in the basement of their unfinished house, but she invited us anyway. Five months later, and eight months pregnant, my mother decided to move us to Mesa, Arizona to be near her younger brother. Yes, from a winter in Alaska to a summer in Arizona. It would be there in Mesa that we would experience abject poverty, and I would fall prey to a sexual deviant at age 14. I'm choosing my words carefully. I want to be fair and accurate in the telling of this story. I used the word predator at the beginning, and now I use deviant. Are these words true? A predator stalks their prey looking for the vulnerable. I'm not certain how long he watched me walk to and from school before he approached our house. I only know that he did watch me. In a healthy social system, he would have walked away once he'd learned that I was a child. I know this because that's what a healthy, mature bonobo ape would have done. Bonobos are genetically our nearest mammalian relative. They have a more partnership-style social order. They are unashamedly sex-positive. Immature females with budding sexualities experiment, sometimes with mature males. The males may allow it, but they never penetrate an immature female. I was gobsmacked when I learned this in college. If he was not a deviant, he would have not penetrated a 14-year-old. 
It was 1968 when we arrived in Mesa. I was nine years old with four younger brothers, ages eight to newborn. After a long and intense period of postpartum depression and PTSD, my mother eventually found employment as a stock worker in the cigarette smoke-filled basement of J.C. Penney's. Full-time minimum wage kept us in groceries for about four days of the week. The other days, we went hungry. Childcare was a problem, and we were often left at home alone after school. There was lots of fighting. No one told me things like brush your teeth. We all lacked basic care. I would lie awake at night and worry. If Child Protective Services ever found out about the squalid living conditions my brothers and I were in, they surely would separate us. None of us wanted that. In 1973, five years later, I turned into a leggy 14-year-old. A cabinet maker, a man who owned a shop across the street from my house, took notice. He asked my mother permission to date me. She agreed against my protests. Because of his presence, I had more access to food and basic care. I started eating better. Along with that, my mother also got a new set of kitchen cabinets. My world of puppy love, closed mouth kisses with boys my own age was over. Within two months' time, this man would sexually penetrate me. I have not mentioned yet that the man who darkened my mother's door was of the Mormon faith and that my father was from the poor deep south. In both of their worlds, sexual involvement with a girl this age was not unheard of. I understand now that a 14-year-old girl is still very much a child. This fact pains me deeply. From 1969 to 1975, from ages 10 to 16, I lived part of the summers in hippie paradise with my father and stepmother where people worked together sharing resources and responsibilities. Meals came from our collective gardens. We would all swim and bathe nude in the South Fork of the Trinity River. In the evenings, we would gather around the campfire to play music and sing songs. We were wild, happy children in nature's abundance. The rest of the year was spent in malnutrition hell with my mother. Arizona winters were indeed cold, living in a drafty ramshackle shack with paper walls. We subsisted on government ration grade D canned ham and blocks of cheese. My mother was depressed and despondent much of the time. The fighting amongst my siblings was fierce as we grappled with neglect and scarcity. The disparity of these two contrasting situations was not lost on me. I empathized deeply with my mother's situation, and in many ways, I too felt the pain of her rejection. I also empathized with my father and saw the value in his new lifestyle. When I think of the whole situation while looking at it through the lens of a partnership social system, I picture my mother and her children being embraced and supported by the community. With the patriarchal dominant social system in place as it was, we were discards dependent on a cruel and shameful welfare system. I'm sure we were not the only ones. In 1975, at the age of 16, I was legally emancipated from both my parents in order to marry the cabinet maker. That's when my trouble really increased. Domestic violence is a peculiar and insidious thing. It started after the dinners I would prepare for us. 
At the end of the meal, he would finish his glass of milk and then flick the last drops in the bottom of the glass into my face. He accused me of not having a sense of humor. He started to treat me like property. And now that we were married and sex itself wasn't taboo, the sexual abuse ratcheted up. I was smart enough to divorce him at 17. I was a senior in high school. By the grace of God, there were no children between us. In 1976, Peter Frampton was making the bicentennial scene. I waited tables and went to an alternative school. I had a studio apartment that I shared with a roommate. I danced for fun at the local disco. Then I lost my roommate and came precariously close to being homeless. I was seeing a man who was as close to living on the streets as I, and we pooled our resources in the interest of mutual survival. Only months into our relationship, he would hit me. But I had nowhere to go. By the time I was 18, I was pregnant. I knew deeply that I wanted to keep my child. I thought I could do it on my own. I was so wrong. It was a complicated birth. The father of my child was now a resentful, sole breadwinner with two dependents. The emotional and physical abuse continued. I learned how to avoid most of the physical abuse by disappearing whenever he was around. He too accused me of not having a sense of humor. I was never right in any disagreement. I had no voice. Just days before my 23rd birthday, I gave birth to my second son. It was an uncomplicated natural birth, and I could feel a growing sense of empowerment in my body. Regardless, or because of this, in 1983, at 24 years old, I have a messy breakdown. I fled my marriage and landed in a heap at my hippie parents' doorstep, still nursing my 16-month-old son, my five-year-old son left behind in flight. It would be three painful years before my ex-husband would reunite us. I would receive very little child support, and I had no means of pursuing it legally. I needed to work, and my experience with domestic violence landed me a good-paying job as a social worker in rural Trinity County. I set my sights on obtaining a higher education. As a working single parent of two growing boys, I obtained a Bachelor of Arts degree in studio art and a single subject teaching credential. It took me eight years to do this on welfare because I also worked part-time and it was important to me to be there when my boys came home from school. Here's how I thought about welfare. When I first came to California, I met a hippie woman from Santa Cruz who had the cutest little toddler girl. Out of curiosity, I asked her what she did for a living. She replied that she worked for the government. She did not look like a government worker, so I asked her what she did, and she said, I raise healthy children. It is this mindset that makes me determined to persevere through the shame involved with accepting welfare and I kept my eye on the prize. I wanted healthy, happy children, and I wanted to be a public high school teacher. I thought of welfare as my supportive community, my supportive husband. I was just finishing up my general ed at community college in 1988 when Reaganomics put a two-year cap on welfare benefits, only enough time to learn a trade. 
Thankfully, I had social service angels on the inside who got me through to my goal of being a teacher. During this time, there was lots of healing, soul-searching, and hard work. I would rediscover my deep love for dance and creativity in the visual and performing arts. I would feed the soul of the dancer and the artist in me finally. In a surreal moment, the summer of 1991, I would find myself leading a colorful parade of 30 drummers and dancers through the streets of downtown Chico, California. I, the disappearing battered woman, was now the founder of a thriving community drum and dance troupe leading a parade. It's a moment I could have never imagined 10 years earlier. It is this love of dance that lands me my first teaching job as an art and dance instructor at a high school in the California East Bay Area Delta. I would receive Teacher of the Year twice in my 25-year career there. I had found my niche. I was finally thriving. And I kept a special eye out for students who might be having trouble at home. 22 years ago, I adopted a 16-year-old student of mine who was being neglected, and I consider her my daughter from another mother. She's the one who dropped everything and moved in to take care of me when I was diagnosed with stage 4C ovarian cancer two years ago. There's nothing like a radical reproductive surgery and six rounds of chemo to make you reevaluate and reflect on your life. Healing from that experience literally ripped the scars off of all those old wounds. I grieved intensely for the 14-year-old in me. I grieved for the young mother. And I grieve now for my damaged body. I'm cancer-free, but my left leg and foot are damaged with lymphedema and neuropathy. Doctors tell me it's a lifelong condition, and it dominates my life. As a former dance and yoga teacher, I understood the lymphatic system some, but now I have a much deeper experiential understanding of it. It's all about flow, tears included. My leg is like a barometer. If I feel tangled up and congested in any way, either mentally, physically, emotionally, or spiritually, I feel it all in my damaged leg. The telling of this story has been an emotional heavy lift, and my leg gave me trouble as I wrote it. My left leg is teaching me to understand the value of observing and releasing grief as it arises in the body, and then the need to let those emotions flow when they arise. This wisdom is a gift I have received from my father and stepmother who discovered Vipassana meditation. The seekers found what they were looking for. There is a family joke that even though my father's departure caused such great suffering, he was able to find a solution to end that suffering through meditation. Even though it has been a struggle, the telling of this story is helping me process and release those issues in my tissues. It's my sincere hope that bringing situations like mine into the light will help create the changes being called for in this podcast. I hope it will have a butterfly effect and guide our grandchildren and our species as a whole towards a more peaceful existence on this planet. Before I end my story, I must share that in 1999, my mother was diagnosed with lung cancer at the age of 63 probably as a result of all those smoke-filled years in the basement of J.C. Penney's. She was given 18 months to live. My mother was cared for, tag-team style, during the entirety of those 18 months by me, 
my four brothers, my father, and my stepmother. Before she died, we were able to honor her as the matriarch of an intact family. My father and stepmother were present for much of her hospice care. There was a deep healing during that time for all of us. My mother said it was the happiest 18 months of her life. Thank you so much, Susan, for joining the show and for sharing your stories. And above all, thank you for continuing to shine with such grace and intelligence and optimism. It's truly inspiring. And thank you again to Red O'Hare as well. I know that today's content has not been easy to sit with, but it's so important that we continue to elevate these difficult stories and challenge the systems which led to them. So thank you listeners for holding this space alongside us and continuing to join us week after week as we reckon with patriarchy and the pain that it's created. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. Make sure to join us again next week when we're going to be back to boot camp and beyond with former intelligence officer Caitlin Zivanovich as she helps us delve deeper into the Marines, hypermasculinity, and how together we can start shifting our Marine Corps culture for the better. All of this next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.